Welcome to the Empire Files podcast. This is Mike Preisner here with Abby Martin. This content is normally just for our patrons, but because of the major developments in the struggle for Palestine, we wanted to make this episode in its entirety available to everyone. But if you'd like to support our work and would like to access all of our previous exclusive podcasts and all the ones that are forthcoming, please go to patreon.com slash empirefiles and join the Patreon family. We have reached a turning point over the past two weeks through the U.S.-Israeli war on Gaza and its brutality in the rest of Palestine. Of course, here at The Empire Files, we have been working nonstop to intervene in the Israeli propaganda narrative, producing new videos, new podcasts, releasing our film Gaza Fight for Freedom for free on YouTube, which got almost a quarter million views in just about a week, and doing countless interviews on the topic in other media, including Abby appearing on Al Jazeera and some other big platforms. In addition, we've been doing everything we can to mobilize people in the streets around the country. And here in L.A., we've been endorsers and Abby has been a speaker at several mass actions at the Israeli consulate. And so we want to bookend this really historic two week period with a glimmer of hope. Actually, not so much of a glimmer of hope, but a beam, a bright beam of hope. The movement for a free Palestine has just had a breakthrough one there is no turning back from, and our guest today believes it is the beginning of the end for the Israeli colonial project. We are joined by Brian Becker, who has been on this podcast before and has been in several episodes of the Empire Files videos. Brian is host of the podcast called The Socialist Program, which is a really essential source of news and analysis for us here at Empire Files. And uh, we encourage people to support their work, uh, becoming a patron there. You get uh, access to exclusive monthly seminars with Brian, uh, in addition to their uh, content three days a week. Uh, You can find them at patreon.com slash the socialist program and find the podcast on any of your streaming apps. But more than a political analyst, Brian has been a key organizer for a free Palestine for decades, especially when it was an extremely marginalized topic. He was the central organizer of the biggest protests in the U.S. for Palestine, including what had been the single largest march for Palestine in American history. The biggest ever, that is, until the events of the past two weeks. He's going to take us through the history of the struggle, but more importantly, where we are at right now the truly historic breakthrough that has been achieved, and the new reality that we could see a free Palestine in our lifetime, and maybe sooner rather than later. Thank you so much for joining us today, Brian, on the Empire Files podcast. Abby, it's great to be here. Thanks. So, Brian, right now we're uh, a couple days after this, this ceasefire that was agreed between Hamas and the Israeli state. Uh, What do you think the conditions were that led Israel to capitulate so quickly uh, to the ceasefire? Well, I think the most uh, the most important part of the decision for Netanyahu, I mean, we all can see, I think anyone who's paying careful attention that while the operation was, you know, successful in, in carrying out or sustaining or imposing huge amounts of human suffering, from a military point of view, it was not succeeding at all. But but the tipping point came when Biden finally, after days of sitting on the sidelines and allowing the Israeli destruction to go on, paid for by the U.S. government, paid for by U.S. taxpayers with the support of the Biden administration, finally Biden came in and I, I think it was on Tuesday, said, uh, I expect a de-escalation. And on Wednesday said, uh, we expect a ceasefire momentarily, and sure enough, there was a ceasefire. And if you look at the Israeli press, uh, 
there's it's pretty i mean except for the psychophantic press that's just supporting netanyahu the israeli press is pretty clear that what netanyahu finally uh submitted to was american pressure the pressure of the biden administration which says so much because it also indicates that if the u.s government had wanted to stop it in the beginning the u.s government could have also had the same sort of impact and ultimately, you know, Israel, while it has a strong military, while it presents itself as an omnipotent military force, it is an extension of American power. It is fundamentally a proxy regime if it wasn't for U.S. support. And I don't mean just the three or four or five billion dollars the U.S. sends to Israel every year, making Israel the largest recipient of U.S. military and economic aid. I don't mean just that. I mean, the fact that as a as a settler colonial regime in an area where there are perhaps 300 million Arabs, uh, it's clear that the Israeli settler project could not exist without the political, not to mention the military, diplomatic and economic, but the political support of Western imperialism. And since 1967, that means U.S. imperialism. So I think it was imperialist pressure on Netanyahu. Yeah, and this is after Biden blocked five international ceasefire attempts, of course, approved that near billion dollar weapons deal amid this massacre, which was absolutely shocking that he did that. But I think that, you know, what you're saying really is true, that Biden was feeling the pressure from several things, this this huge mounting protest movement here in the U- U.S. where, you know, 150,000 protesters and this unprecedented showing up for Palestinian rights met him in Dearborn. Uh, Rashida Talib, this block in Congress that is, you know, going out there unabashedly so saying Israel is an apartheid state. You have Rashida, you can't deny her lived experience as a Palestinian going and confronting him on the tarmac. I think that was a pretty historic moment. And then you have the other side of the equation, which is this kind of military quagmire that Israel found itself in, essentially. I mean, Hamas had improved its capabilities militarily. It had breached the Iron Dome um, more than it has in the past. 150 or so buildings were actually hit. You know, more Israelis died than had in several of these past uh, quote-unquote conflict or wars between Gaza and the Israeli state. So I feel like Israel's only response to that was just carpet bombing these neighborhoods, targeting huge civilian infrastructure, and just committing these war crimes in broad daylight. And that, I think, is an unsustainable thing because they know, like in 2014, that they can't really beat back Hamas militarily. If they're going into Gaza, they will suffer significant losses. So talk about all of these aspects, how that fit into to the ceasefire and also like the military aspect of how this is an unsustainable thing for Israel to do in terms of fighting Hamas. Right. Uh, like what, what is actually the military goal? I mean, obviously, uh, the, the Israeli regime would like the Palestinians to leave Gaza. They would like them to leave the West Bank. Uh, the whole idea of making life unlivable is designed to, to force an ethnic cleansing solution that the Israeli government, in spite of its you know sort of use of unlimited violence against the people for for from whom their land was stolen, uh, the Palestinians aren't leaving. And 
you know, we've talked before with the Empire Files and, and you, I've listened to your broadcasts, Abby, where, you know, you, you make the point, and I think it's such an important point that resilience or endurance, steadfastness, the refusal of the Palestinian people to leave the land uh, is in fact a fundamental part, not only of Palestinian consciousness and national identity, it's a fundamental part of the military equation. How can the Israelis actually force all of the people out? Well, they could commit a literal genocide, but world, world public opinion actually matters these days. World public opinion won't tolerate that. Uh, U.S. public opinion wouldn't tolerate that either. Uh, and so as a consequence, the military operations, again, succeed in at, at, at destroying buildings and killing civilians and making life miserable, but it doesn't succeed at forcing the Palestinian people to leave. And that means that the Israeli military application, the application of military force doesn't, doesn't really succeed. Now, uh, again, there is another factor as world public opinion and U.S. public opinion is going through this dramatic shift. I mean, it's a dramatic shift. Uh, the possibility for the Israelis of an actual global boycott, the BDS movement, similar to akin to what actually happened to bring down the South African apartheid government, they know all too well that this is a real and perhaps the most important and most fundamental danger to the regime. I mean, the South African uh, apartheid regime was would have been considerably more numerous and and more powerful in Southern Africa, but once the world united against apartheid, which also ultimately led the U.S. ruling class, which had been the biggest uh, supporters of of the fascist, racist apartheid regime in Johannesburg. Uh, it also forced political divisions within the United States. Finally, in 1988, it, yes, it was 1988, by the way, that the U.S. Congress finally voted, Dick Cheney voted in the minority, finally voted to lift the designation that Nelson Mandela was a terrorist. Now, that was a consequence of four years of intense struggle for uh, what was boycott, divest, and sanction the apartheid government in South Africa. And uh, if that were to become a major global force in the political fissures within not just the uh, American public opinion, but within the government, and, and including, as you mentioned, an increasing a chorus of voices within the U.S. Congress who are saying, look, this is apartheid like South Africa, and look, we should not be supporting it. In fact, we should not be financing it. If anything, we should be engaged in a boycott of it. This will make it untenable for the U.S. Uh, to continue its current policy, and that uh, is a basic danger to the settler regime. Now, it's important for our audience to remember that the United States was not always joined at the hip to the Israeli government. In mm -hmm. 1948, even though the U.S. was the first government uh, to recognize the state of Israel as a legitimate state, the Soviet Union, uh, sadly, was number two. The Truman administration was against sending arms to Israel. Uh, Ben-Gurion went and raised money ad hoc from very wealthy, the wealthiest Jewish Americans who were able to buy huge amounts of arms after the U.S. demobilized following World War II. At that time, the U.S. didn't have a permanent military machine, or didn't have a military industrial complex. So as the U.S. demobilized, a lot of weapons came on the market. And Ben-Gurion and the Zionist forces were able to have a heavily armed 
uh, Zionist uh, military operation by May 15th, 1948. In 1956, when Israel invaded Egypt, along with Britain and France after Nasser uh, uh, nationalized the Suez Canal, the Eisenhower administration condemned Israel. Uh, the, the American government and the Soviets condemned the Israeli-French-British project. And in fact, if you look at Adlai Stevenson, the Democratic candidate in 1956 at his campaign rallies, he was condemning Eisenhower for not being a supporter of the state of Israel. It's only in 1967, in the, in the period of a wave of pan-Arab, socialist-led, secular-led revolutions that were sweeping the Arab world, and in the middle of the Cold War, and when Israel showed its military prowess by defeating all of its Arab neighbors uh, in the in the Six Day War in 1967, June 67, and and then. Uh, made it clear for the United States that Israel could be the extension of American military power in this resource-rich but now revolutionary part of the world, only then did the U.S. support the state of Israel completely. It wasn't really the Jewish lobby, even though it's strong, that made this geostrategic calculation. My point is, if Israel, in fact, ultimately ends up as a liability either internationally, as the U.S. pivots away from the Middle East, Uh, or at home because of the growing political shift of public consciousness, uh, you can can see a period, and I think the Israeli government and the Israeli ruling class certainly can see a period where the U.S. no longer becomes the unquestioning patron for the state of Israel. And that will be really the end or the beginning of the end of the Zionist project. I, I think actually we've already hit the beginning of the end uh, but of course, it will take more time for the for the maturation of those uh, uh, signs to be understood and observable by all. Um, that's I really I think the main crux of our conversation today, Brian, is is this the beginning of the end and why? And I think that we definitely want to uh, talk a, a lot more about that. And of course, what you're mentioning now, this idea that U.S. imperialism and Israeli colonialism, they have congruent interests, but they don't have the same interests. And so the gulf between those congruent interests can grow wider and wider. Um, and, you know, it, it's feasible that these differences can be, uh, the wedge can be formed between imperialism and, and w- how much of it sees Israel as a liability versus a benefit in the region. And also, it, I think it'll be important to touch uh, later in the episode on on that history that we've gone through and also the history of the movement that's that's been following it along the way and why now marks such a different period. Um, but I want to go back to something you said in the beginning about why this ceasefire happened. Um, Israel caved to the pressure of the Biden administration of imperialism. But the Biden administration very clearly caved to the pressure of the movement in the United States and around the world. In fact, when Biden had that phone call with Netanyahu, where for the first time he urged a ceasefire, he had previously said, you know, green light, do whatever you want. You know, they went into autopilot mode. Like when Israel bombs Gaza, we say unconditional support. As long as you want to go, go for it. Um, But then after he changed his tune, after about a week and a half of intense uprisings in the United States, which uh, 
I, I may be wrong about this, but I believe they were the biggest, like May 18th and 19th, I think were the biggest days of protests for Palestine in American history. Um, when Biden went to Michigan, that may have very well been the largest demonstration for Palestine in American history, single demonstration in one location. Um, but when Biden said in that phone call to Netanyahu, he didn't say, we need to have a ceasefire because the civilian toll is too high or it's uh, it's a disaster for civilians, or it's it's peace is is more in our interest than it is the destruction and in Gaza, or that the rockets coming from from Gaza this needs to stop. He said the only reason he gave was there needs to be a ceasefire because I cannot hold back the pressure for much longer, admitting that he was playing the role of holding back the pressure in the U.S. and in internationally from the international community. Um, and so that was like a pretty bold admission. So if you're saying that the ceasefire happened because Israel caved to the pressure of Biden and Biden caved to the pressure of the Palestine Solidarity Movement, that's, I think, pretty significant. Indeed. I mean, isn't that gross? I'm so I'm so glad that my Mike, I'm so glad that you brought this up, that Biden says, I can't hold back the pressure. I'd like to let you keep killing all of these <laughs> right. kids in Gaza. That would be fine. But guess what? It's becoming a political liability for me. And and it's so gross. I mean, it's so immoral. It just says so much about these politicians, these imperialists like Biden. Uh, but, you know, you're right. I'm looking at The New York Times headline. Democrats growing more skeptical of Israel pressure Biden. Now, this is The New York Times May 21st, a couple of days ago. Among Democrats in Congress, attitudes towards Israel have grown more critical as the party base expresses concern about the human rights of Palestinians. Well, these that's tepid, passive, New York Times style, awful, I don't know, I find some other adjectives to describe the way they report. <laughs> but you know what I mean, like expresses concern. No, hundreds of thousands of people were in the streets chanting. They were demanding. They were you know, they were identifying the problem as Joe Biden, not simply Netanyahu. I mean, it wasn't expressing concern. It was outrage in the cities, uh, big and small throughout the United States. And, and, and of course, inside of Congress. And we, you, you mentioned, Abby, in the beginning, Rashida Tlaib's uh, talking to Biden for eight minutes out on the tarmac. Uh, yeah, you know, Rashida Tlaib's father was an auto worker. He was part of the emigration that came to the uh, to different cities, but especially Dearborn, especially Detroit after the 1967 war, uh, when so many Arab people were forced again out of their homes. That's when Israel seized the West Bank. That's when it seized Gaza. That's when it seized the Golan Heights. That's when it seized Sinai, uh, and it led to a, you know this wave of emigration. Her father was among them. And uh, auto workers in Detroit went on strike, in fact, in 1973 uh, against the United Auto Workers for supporting the state of Israel uh, during uh, the 1973 war, which came, you know, six years after the 67 war. My point, though, is uh, her father was probably in those couple thousand auto workers who struck. They were black workers and Arab workers and a few white workers. They were more or less a lonely voice you would have never, ever, ever seen in the New York Times at that time, or even a couple of years ago, a headline, Democrats growing more skeptical of Israel pressure Biden. And that article very interestingly says this, that the change in Congress is also a reflection 
in the change in the country as a consequence of the nationwide uprisings against racism that started in Ferguson in 2014, but actually hit their high point last summer uh, after the killing uh, in Minneapolis of George Floyd, and that this political movement reshaped American consciousness. 35 million Americans, half of them for the first time uh, ever participating in a protest, went into the streets. And now you have six months later, uh, people in Congress, the progressives and outside of Congress, but people who are in this movement thinking, wait, the Palestinian situation looks a lot like the black American situation, an oppressed, large minority people, super oppressed by a racist settler regime uh, fighting for justice. And so we have this other amazing part of the moment that the black liberation movement, however you call it, it was the civil rights movement, then the black power movement. Now it's the Black Lives Matter movement, the new iterations every generation or two, but it's the same struggle for freedom is identifying with the Palestinian struggle. And so there's no possible way that all of this, these changes in the political climate in the United States on the issue of racism uh, and white supremacy can't but impact on thinking about Palestine. And that's precisely what's happened. And again, the New York Times, the you know, the newspaper of record for imperialism uh, made that the point in this article. I think it's a really incredible development um, to link these struggles together and the fact that so many millions of Americans have that political consciousness of international solidarity at the forefront of not only Black Lives Matter, but, you know, all of these things, uh, putting them together and understanding how the plight of Palestinians is similar to the plight of Black Americans here. There definitely is a shift happening, Brian. And you have said that you think this is the beginning of the end, that we've reached a breaking point. I do agree with you to a certain extent. I mean, not only this block in Congress, but you have these established institutions that are kind of notorious for both sides in the issue in the past, like Human Rights Watch coming out and unequivocally saying, you know, Israel's an apartheid state, you know, and there's no turning back from that because once you declare something like that, how can you turn back the hands of time and say, oh, no, 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 it's not an apartheid state. It's like the consciousness is now shifted to such an extreme degree where people understand that. And you even have people like John Oliver having to say that on camera on HBO. I mean, there is something happening and it is breaking through the mainstream to a certain degree. However, you still have, you know, the paper of record saying things like we need to rout Hamas, basically explicitly calling for, you know, genocide in the Gaza Strip by people like Brett Stevens. But beyond that, it's breaking through the mainstream. Then you have institutions like Human Rights Watch saying this. You have Congress saying this. You have unprecedented historic protests in the U.S. But I think people will just look at the grand scheme of things and saying and say Israel has gotten away with this you know, again, um, look at the Gaza flotilla massacre. That was a heinous event that I felt like should have been a breaking point, you know, and then you have the Great March of Return, 200 plus Palestinians mowed down by snipers that were peacefully resisting. This is what happens when Palestinians peacefully resist. So now I feel like what makes this different, Brian? Why is this the beginning of the end when we've seen this happen so many times before? You know, uh, Martin Luther King said the uh, the arc of the moral universe is long, but bends in the direction of justice. 
Well, I, I don't actually, as an, as an atheist, believe that the universe has a morality, <laughs> but I think his point is correct, that it does bend the, the history of struggle, the history of society does bend in the direction of justice. Um, and, and also, people's consciousness goes through shifts and changes slowly, 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 and then finally... Uh, you know, the the slow quantitative shift in consciousness becomes something qualitatively different, where your whole definition of a phenomena is altered. And and I think it's worthwhile to take a minute to remember how, when the state of Israel came into existence in 1948, uh, the Israeli settler project and their imperial patrons were able to reach out to people all around the world, but especially to people inside the United States, with the idea that that Jewish people needed a place of refuge. I mean, it was right after World War II. There was a Holocaust. Millions of Jewish people were liquidated by the Nazis, by the Germans, uh, because as it turns out, the U.S. ended up not supporting Germany, but it was at war with Germany, the very pro- Hitler forces within the American establishment sort of changed sides by the beginning of the war. And by that, I would include Henry Ford, the Bush family, uh, the Kennedy family, uh, a big part of the Allen and John Foster Dulles. Sadly, the airport in Washington is the Dulles airport. I think pro-Nazi uh, individuals should not have airports named after them. Uh, <laughs> they were all pro-German. They were pro-Hitler. They were commending Hitler for his disciplining of the German labor movement, the German socialist and communist movement. But they ended up on the other side of Germany. And so at the end of World War II at Nuremberg, uh, even though the U.S. had committed its own war crimes, like the n- nuclear destruction of Nagasaki and Hiroshima, the firebombing of Dresden, just to m- mention a few, the Nazis were in the dock for the crimes against humanity and crimes against peace and war crimes. And the, the Jewish Holocaust, the, the Holocaust against Jews, it wasn't only against Jews, but disproportionately uh, singling out Jewish people for death and destruction. It earned uh, the enterprise of the Zionists uh, a lot of sympathy. Now, most European Jews had opposed Zionism in the 1920s and 30s. European Jewry did not want to go to the Middle East to live. They were <laughs> French and German and Polish. They wanted to live where they were, but they didn't want to be the victims of endless pogroms. So in 1948, you know, there was a lot of sympathy, uh, even within the black movement. And, and Kwame Touré, Stokely Carmichael, talks about the shift in 1967 when SNCC came out and supported the Arab and Palestinian people. He made the point that in the beginning, he they were all supporting Jewish people because they felt the Jews had been the victims of racism and, 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 and oppression and genocide. Uh, but then they started to put, as, as the black civil rights movement framed their own struggle, and Kwame Touré in particular, with, under the rubric of black power, and, and framed the movement not as civil rights, but as part of the anti-colonial struggle for national liberation, uh, the, the left-wing vanguard like Kwame Touré or the Black Panther Party, uh, SNCC, started to identify with the Palestinians. But they were a minority. There were other groups too, Youth Against War and Fascism, which I was a part of. There were groups that were pro-Palestinian, but very, very marginalized. And Israel still had the dominant narrative that Jews had been oppressed 
and the Jews were going to be oppressed by the Arab majority like they had been by the German majority in World War II. Now, look at the last 20 years. I mean, the, Israel reinvaded the West Bank in March 2002. They went to war against Gaza in 2008. Again in 2012, again in 2014, they invaded Lebanon in in 2016. Now this other, this latest uh, egregious destruction of civilians. I mean, if you look at the last 20 years, you can't think of the Jewish regime in Israel as an oppressed uh, uh, entity that needs your support. It looks like an oppressor and because it is an oppressor. So partly it's the movement of the Palestinian people, partly it's the movement here for social change, partly it's the the rise of the Black Lives Matter movement, and partly it's just the observable, obvious uh, part of the reality of the Israeli conduct that it's not an oppressed country, that it is in fact an oppressor country. It looks like the US in Vietnam, it looks like South Africa in Angola, And people, as a consequence, can recognize it for what it is more and more. So I think that is also part of this equation. Yeah. And, you know, I just want just really quickly, how big of a difference do you think it is this past two weeks, what you've seen this past two weeks? I mean, how different was this from even, you know, a couple of years ago, um, the Palestine movement or like the last upsurge was probably the 2014 war. There was, a, of course, a huge upsurge and thousands of people came into the streets. You know, there was another peak in consciousness when Ahed Tamimi, the, the ch- Palestinian child who was sentenced to Israeli prison for uh, touching an Israeli soldier who was brutalizing her family, uh, that received a lot of public attention and outcry. And then you had the Great March of Return, which seemed to get a, a lot of condemnation because Israel was just shooting you know, old women and children and people in wheelchairs, you know, with exploding bullets from 100 meters away, uh, who are just doing absolutely nothing. So you have all these kind of shifts in, in opinion. But in terms of how the movement has taken off, would you say, how significant would you say the past two weeks have been for bringing about a, a turning point, a breakthrough moment? As significant as what happened uh, during the nationwide uprising against racism after the killing of George Floyd. Uh, this is an equivalent uh, game changer. This is a game changer. We are witnessing a profound shift. Now, I've been, you know, as a longtime organizer, I've been involved in, you know, all of these movements for a long time. And in 2014, for instance, what the last big Gaza war that you mentioned, uh, they that was, I think, uh, Operation Protective Edge, I think is what the Israelis named it. Um, you know, we, the Answer Coalition, I'm the national director of the Answer Coalition, we organized the March on Washington and we had 50,000 people come out. I think it was August 3rd, 2014. We were, um, you know, we were at the center of it. We built a coalition with Arab and Muslim and black civil rights groups and, and a few peace groups. Most of the peace groups were still American peace movement was still, even in 2014, not fully on board because they didn't want to be like, if it was about Gaza, then you'd be like, oh, you support Hamas, you know, like that whole demonizing thing. But, you know, we had 50,000 people. The demonstrations of the last two weeks are so different. I can't even describe it. Not only were they not a single demonstration, they took place in scores, maybe, maybe hundreds of cities and towns all over the United States. But also, they weren't organized really by the Answer Co- I mean, Answer Coalition was in them, 
but these were organized by young people from uh, the Arab and Palestinian and African American and other communities. These were protests that nobody, no like old uh, or older organization had to sort of go into motion and do all the logistics to make them happen. This was the outpouring of the people. It was nationwide. It was everywhere. It was global, in fact. And it was spontaneous, meaning uh, you don't have to convince people. You don't have to win them over to come out. They want to come out. They're the ones who are coming out. It's like mm-hmm. one of those moments where you know, the, the, even the most radical organizations are not as radical as the people, <laughs> that the people who are normally not that radical and not that political suddenly become the actors in history. They mount the historical stage. They become the actors. This is emblematic of, of moments when change is, is profound, where we go, go from the small quantitative changes to these explosive qualitative shifts in consciousness. And that's what we witnessed in the last couple of weeks. Otherwise, even the members of Congress, Rashida Tlaib, who, of course, is Palestinian herself, or the squad or others who are, are liberal or progressive, I, they wouldn't have felt as strong as they are to take their action. I mean, mm. it's still not strong enough. What makes the politicians, whether they're liberal or conservative, strong? It's like what's happening in the street and what's right. happening in the street is qualitatively different from any other thing that's happened uh, since 1948. Yeah. And that's something that you can't really turn back from once that qualitative leap happens. It's not something that is easily reversed. And everyone who's had their consciousness shift over the past two weeks, whether they took action or not, I mean, that that's something that you can't turn, cannot turn back the clock on. And I think that's uh, what has made the US and Israeli establishment very nervous. I mean, just anecdotally, I mean, your comparison to how this was as significant as the Black Lives Matter uprising after George Floyd, which was significant because uh, Derek Chauvin is now in jail, convicted on all charges. And there is this undeniable overall a tectonic shift in American society and how they viewed the issue and how it's a precedent setting for the future. But I remember when the George Floyd uprising happened, something that I had never seen before is any when I was just driving around LA, not at demonstrations, not at near demonstrations, I would just see like a random single white person all alone, standing on a street corner, holding a sign that said Black Lives Matter. This, these, and I saw it a lot. These people didn't know where the demonstration was. They weren't connected to any movement. They didn't know what to do. They just felt so compelled to do something, anything, that they would do the very bold thing of going out by themselves alone, ready to get heckled, ready to get things thrown at them, and just make a statement on a street corner because they felt that strongly about it. And yesterday when I was driving around LA, I saw that exact same thing. I saw a young 16 year old or so white kid standing on a street corner all alone with a sign that handmade sign that said Israel is an apartheid state. And, and, and also in in an area where they would expect uh, to not be received in, in a friendly way. And so seeing those are the only two times in my life I've seen that in the initial George Ford uprising and in the current thing. And so I think it just kind of speaks to the impact it's had in, in a, in a broad sense. Yeah. And Brian, you know, let's talk about this historic strike that took place across all the political factions and all of the occupied territories within Palestine. Uh, the Israel the Israel Builders Association said Palestinian workers had observed the strike. Only 150 of 65,000 Palestinian construction workers coming to work 
which paralyzed all of these sites, caused losses estimated at $40 million. Um, that's, of course, just one industry, but I think it really goes to show how much Israel depends on exploiting Palestinian labor. So talk about this strike. What impact do you think it had and how the Palestinian resistance that we're seeing within Palestine, um, including within 48, differs from what we saw, uh, the conditions that um, you know arose into the first and second intifada? Yes. In, in 1936, there was a Palestinian general strike. It was very historic against British colonialism and the domination of British colonialism over uh, the Arab world and over Palestine. Uh, it, it was, you know, like 30 years ago, 40 years ago, every young Palestinian knew about the general strike of 1936. It was like part of the legacy. It was part of the consciousness. It was something uh, of pride. One of the one of the things that Israel has tried to do since '67 is create a different reality in Gaza, a different reality in the West Bank, a different reality in Jerusalem, and a different uh, reality in the so-called Arab cities within uh, Israel proper. I'm using air quotes. Um, and what the general strike showed is that while there may have been a significant efforts and and perhaps at times very successful efforts to divide and conquer the Palestinian people, the general strike was a manifestation that the Palestinian people are one. It demonstrated this amazing unity. So it was Gaza. It was the West Bank. It was Jerusalem. It was the Arab cities. And it was supported by the Palestinian diaspora all over the world and joined by and inspiring to non-Palestinians who are part of the labor movements in, in countries everywhere. And I, I think that, um, you know, it's a perfect tactic, isn't it? You know, the right to withhold one's labor, the, the essential right, the right to say, I am, not a, I am not enslaved. I have the right to withhold my labor. That's the defining difference in a way from enslavement. And when people do that voluntarily, uh, even though it means they won't get paid, it might mean that they're going to be repressed. It might mean that they're going to lose their job. When you have working class people do that and they do it together, um, it's a demonstration that there is no power greater, but a reaffirmation, Palestine is one. Uh, yeah, I mean, and um, so so basically, you know, there's a breakthrough, of course, in the U.S. movement in a major way, but it also seems that there is this big breakthrough in the Palestinian struggle also. And the uprisings throughout Palestine, throughout 48, the occupied territories, the resistance from Gaza was really unprecedented or hadn't happened in in quite a long period of time. Um, and, and how is this different? Because you've, Brian, been an organizer through the first intifada, the second intifada, which of course were more politically complex things to navigate for the US movement and for the Palestinians and in world public opinion. Um, how are things different now from from those periods? And do you agree that it's Palestine has gone through a similar breakthrough and turning point, just like the movement in the U.S. has? Right. So if you look at the first intifada, for instance, uh, which is the resistance that went on for four years, and I believe starts in 1987, the, the Palestinian movement was still at that time dominated by 
a, a large number of organizations who, in their unity with each other, in their united front with each other, constituted the Palestine Liberation Organization, PLO, under the leadership of Yasser Arafat. Arafat was the leader of one in the largest faction within the PLO, that was Fatah. Then there was other secular organizations like the Popular Front for the Liberation of Palestine, PFLP, the Democratic Front for the Liberation of Palestine. Both of these organizations were very large organizations, secular organizations, and part of the Marxist left. Uh, Hamas was a relatively new organization at the time. But the Intifada uh, was an amazing four-year struggle where you know there would be a, a unified center that would say, okay, tomorrow we're going to do this in this city, and, and the next day we're going to do this, and the next day we're going to do this. So it was this unified movement of the of these of these large scale Palestinian organizations. Now, what happened is that after the destruction of the Soviet Union, and after really the the terrible uh, attacks against the by the Israeli state, the repression, the murder of these organizations, uh, after the death of Arafat, of course, in November two thousand four, uh, these organizations have not disappeared, but they've largely been diminished. The only organization that has con has retained uh, equal influence really is Hamas. And Hamas had been elected, surprisingly, as the government in Gaza in, in 2006. So, so it looked like the traditional, long-standing, existing organizational infrastructure of, the, of Palestinian resistance had been, had been, in a way, not destroyed, but very weak, weakened. This was also a consequence of the destruction of the wars in, in Iraq. Uh, and, and then it was accentuated by the war in Libya, and then the civil war that was really not a civil war, but a U.S. and Western imperialist-led war against Syria. So things look really bad for the Palestinian organized movement. So what is remarkable about what's happened now is that in spite of these organizational deficits in the Palestinian movement, the, the people themselves have created new forms of resistance, new tactics, and in new grassroots organizations. I mean, it's, so, it's such a remarkable sort of demonstration of the validity that, that the class struggle or political struggle or anti-imperial struggle, whatever, however you want to label it, it doesn't die. You can kill these revolutionaries and you can destroy or weaken their organizations, but the struggle itself pops up again. And when it pops up again, it requires new organizations and new leaders come forward. And that is what I think we're witnessing. And you see it in the celebrations in, in Jerusalem in the last couple of days uh, after the ceasefire, where people are have a clear sense that we won. We, the Palestinian movement, yes, we suffered a lot, but we have this was a victory for our side. It's it's it has optimism. It has a, a sense that 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 people can win, and so the the destructiveness and demoralization from the earlier setbacks, I think, is being overcome. And as a consequence, new organizations or organizations from from yesteryear will will be sort of reinvented in a new kind of iteration. But all of those things are bound to come because the struggle has hit this high point in spite of the previous organizational deficits. 
it is incredible what we're seeing unfold. And as you mentioned, I mean, this is becoming an untenable situation for Israel in terms of how they're engaging with this type of militarism and occupation in the eyes of the international community. The pressure is mounting when you see organizations like the ICC declaring that they are going to investigate war crimes in the occupied territories. And Biden, I mean, Biden said it all that he couldn't, you know, he couldn't deal with the pressure for much longer, uh, Brian. And, you know, when we're looking at what winning would look like here, how Palestine could be liberated, how we could inevitably get one democratic state with equal rights for everyone. You know, you you mentioned South Africa, and I think in an abstract way, people understand that this is the same fight that needs to be mounted, the same pressure campaign that needs to be launched in order to eventually bring about the fall of apartheid. But what exactly would that look like? Uh, how did that happen? Was it just the political isolation and um, and pressure around the world? Because, you know, as you mentioned, I mean, the U.S. certainly wasn't quick to help facilitate that end goal. Yeah, and and what we're trying to get at here is not so much what happened in South Africa, and so we're it's not so much like what will happen in Palestine for one democratic state, but what what hypothetically could happen in the U.S. that and that causes U.S. support to uh, be withdrawn. Um, and like taking the experiences of South Africa, like, you know, for example, like this, now that there's a, a block in Congress that's accusing Israel of war crimes, calling it apartheid, um, you know, like I think some people scoff at that saying, oh, well, these people aren't real. Uh, they're not real. You know, they're not, they're still pro, some of them are still pro-Israel or whatever. But um, of course, it, for this big dramatic shift to happen, there's going to have to be some kind of alliance with liberals in Congress for Congress to defund Israel, withdraw support, stuff like that. But I mean, just just for going forward, just what is like a, a hypothetical or potential direction that things could go in the US that the movement could take? And like, what would like what, like Abby said, what would winning really look like for the US movement? All right, I'm going to try to do the best I can with that. Um, I I think there's two, I mean, the way I see it, there's two elements to this question uh, in terms of how there will be a fundamental change. If we're talking about winning as like a fundamental change, like an end of apartheid, how how does that happen? Uh, obviously, the Israeli ruling class is determined to hold on to its apartheid power and privileges, right? And they have, you know, immense military and intelligence capabilities, and they're willing to, to you know, use it constantly against the Palestinians. It, it would seem to me that means that the Palestinians, uh, by not leaving, uh, constitute the core of resistance, but, but they can't win by themselves. Um, they need to have uh, international solidarity, and there needs to become a time when their main international patrons feel it's not worth it. It's not worth it to retain the apartheid state structure. So one is the, the pressure of people around the world uh, making it very difficult for corporations and banks and celebrities uh, and governments to continue to do business with the state of Israel. In other words, to economically isolate the apartheid uh, regime. So that's one part of it. So public opinion globally has this huge potential impact, decisive, like as happened in the case of South Africa. There's another side to it, though, which I think it's important for us as activists to understand, 
U.S. imperialism is not going to, at, at a certain moment, think like, wow, we were really on the wrong side here. We really shouldn't have supported apartheid all those years. And now we are going to, you know, self-critically uh, make a new determination and we're going to support Palestinian freedom. That's not going to happen because the calculations of U.S. imperialism in the West were very hard-headed calculations. Uh, what they what they could do, what might happen is at a certain point, because of the continued resistance of the Palestinian people, because of changes in the Arab world in, in terms of support for Palestine, because the U.S. wants to exit from being constantly bogged down in Middle East wars and Middle East conflict, uh, which is actually benefiting the rise of China as a global power, uh, and as a consequence of political pressure inside the United States, the U.S. decides to shift or change its relationship with the state of Israel. Now, if that were to happen, that would create panic within Israeli society, because if the Israeli society, which is now you know, become so racist, so right wing. I, Abby, I saw your interview, interviews, and you said I had to get the hell out of there or some other phraseology because you were interviewing all these young Israelis looking young and hip and so on and espousing the worst kind of supremacist ideas and hatred towards Arabs. I mean, the same part of the population feels very privileged and secure right now, but if it started to feel isolated, a lot of people would, you know, if they're your first or second class, uh, I'm sorry, first or second generation emigres, you can go back to Brooklyn. You can go back to Paris. You can go back to all kinds of different places. And one of the big dangers for the Israelis is if they're, if people start to leave instead of come uh, to Israel. And so that will become a big part of the calculation. And then finally, as I, I mentioned in the beginning, in 1956, the United States did not support Israel. Uh, it really was on the side of Egypt against Israel when the Israelis seized or tried to uh, seize the Suez. Uh, if imperialist calculations you know, convince American imperialism, instead of being just with the Israelis as an extension of American uh, military power, we'd rather have a, a relationships with the Arab bourgeoisie and the Arab bourgeois regimes, and those regimes are being forced by public opinion at home uh, to take a more militant position against Israel, that could happen. That could happen, and we know it could happen because it did happen. It was the reality for the first 19 years of the existence of the state of Israel. Again, as I mentioned earlier, it was only in 1967 in the middle of the Cold War and based on other calculations that the United States decided to fully embrace the state of Israel. So uh, I think we have to look at that in its totality. Finally, finally, ultimately, there's going to be one state. There is Two states were never viable. The Israelis made sure that they weren't viable, but they were never really viable anyway uh, to have a racist apartheid regime occupying most of the land and controlling the airspace and territory and, and access to these lands. There's going to be one state. And I think we're going to see that it's going to be one state uh, that's going to be democratic. It's going to be called Palestine. Uh, hopefully, Arab, uh, Muslim, and Arab Christian and Jewish populations, either indigenous or from other places, 
uh, can live together as Arab, as Muslim, Christian, and Jew live together in peace for thousands of years before colonialism and the Zionist project, which was an extension of colonialism, came to destroy what existed before in Palestine. There will be a democratic uh, Palestine where the entire people live without apartheid. That's the only solution. And I think that we're already seeing that pressure campaign, at least among the left, quote unquote, left within Israeli society where people flee. You know, as we know, Ronnie Barkin, Miko Piled, people who are anti-Zionist or maybe even who are Zionist, but are just completely disgusted with what that necessitates in terms of the ongoing ethnic cleansing and expulsion of indigenous people all around them. We are seeing that happen, I think, which is why or what can explain this fascistic rise that is cementing itself and, and making it very clear that there are not enough leftists within Israeli society to really turn back the clock here. Um, and I really, truly think that uh, Netanyahu and his cohorts really do represent the mainstream current in Israeli society. You mentioned those interviews. Um, I think that's a really fascinating example because it shows you this is not just what Israel wants to paint as the outliers or the aberration, you know, that these extremist armed settlers don't represent the mainstream. In fact, they do represent the mainstream. And these people are codified by the state apparatus and protected by the state. Um, you know, what's interesting is that even though that is the case, this is sanitized from Americans. This reality of what comprises Israeli society is completely sanitized from us. That's why I think people were so shocked at these interviews because they've never seen Israelis speak for themselves. You know, they they had no idea that Israelis are, or a lot of them are very quick to endorse such things as ethnic cleansing and genocide. Um, and unfortunately, that narrative is still is still controlled by the U.S. political establishment, its media apparatus. And so we don't hear about these things. And instead, I think as a reaction to this unprecedented um, and historic mobilizations and strikes that we've seen in the last two weeks, you've seen now the counter narrative coming out that um, anti-Semitism is on the rise as a result of these pro-Palestine demonstrations and actions. I mean, just talk about that, because now it seems like people are having to denounce anti-Semitism in order to make a statement. And it just seems like such a trap, which doesn't make sense as anti-racists um, in this community. I mean, we've already purged anti-Semites from the movement. Like we, It's like, why is this now what people have to do moving forward? And, and just talk about that kind of rhetorical trap that now you have, even have these Congress people who are now having to speak about these incidents that people are allegedly like affiliated with pro-Palestine demonstrations and committing hate crimes now. Yeah, in, in some ways it's new and in some ways it's always been the go-to uh, sort of rhetorical device or propaganda device of uh, forces who are apologizing for Israeli crimes. If you if you protest against apartheid in Israel, that means you hate Jews and you're anti-Semitic. Um, I mean, it's so ludicrous. If you oppose apartheid in South Africa, does that mean you're, quote, anti-white? Uh, <laughs> uh, you know, but nobody, nobody even, like, argues that. But, of course, this is part of the propaganda sort of point that the Israelis have always made. Whenever you demonstrate for Palestine over the years, I mean, I've been doing it for many, many decades, uh, speaking out, doing things. I mean, the 
pro-Israeli political forces have labeled organizers who are in the anti-war movement who stood with Palestine as anti-Semites all the time. The, there, there is another side to this, though, which is that the Zionists, by conflating the Zionist regime and the settler project with Judaism and with Jewish people, by conflating it, by, by, by saying, look, it's all one and the same. If you're against Israel or its policies, you're against Jews because we represent Jews. We are the homeland of Jews everywhere. And Jews everywhere have the right to return to our, their home, which even, even if they've never been there, they have the right to come to Jerusalem, even though Palestinians who have lived there for thousands of years don't have that right. This conflation of Judaism and Jewish people with the state of Israel, in a way, is a death trap for Jewish people. Because as the, as the state of Israel continues to carry out criminal activity and as, as consciousness shifts and, 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 and grows and people recognize apartheid for what it is, uh, and if people who are Jewish s- allow the Israeli government to to take the mantle of this is Judaism and this is the Jewish people, then the opposition to the state of Israel might take anti-Semitic forms. Uh, that's been like the argument of progressive Jews and anti-Zionist Jews for all for decades. That conflating Zionism with Judaism is in fact going to stimulate anti-Semitism. Uh, I don't think this is really happening in in large measure right now, but we do see a wave of anti-Semitism in America that goes along with the wave of anti-Muslim bigotry, that goes along with the wave of hate crimes against black people and against immigrants. I mean, when you reinforce white supremacist notions in America, as has you know obviously happened during the Trump era, uh, people who are not considered, quote, white, and that would not only be black people and Muslim people, but for many white supremacists, it also means uh, Jewish people. They are going to, Jewish people are coming under attack. Now, remember in, in Charlottesville in 2017, mm-hmm. when, when some of those very fine people, as President <laughs> Trump called them, were protesting against race, against black people, they were also chanting, Jews will not replace us. Jews will not replace us. That had nothing to do with pro-Palestinian notions. These were classic fascist anti-Semitic tropes by a growing fascist movement in America that's been stimulated, especially by the Republican Party, especially by the former president of the United States, who told, you know, who said to the Proud Boys, you know, whatever he said, stand up and stand by or stand back and stand by. In other words, get ready to fight. Well, all of these forces are racist. They're also anti-Semites. Now, as people are, are, are standing up to uh, the, uh, and, and, and calling out Israeli apartheid policies, the Zionist forces now say, ah, see, there's a rising tide of, 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 of anti-Semitism. Well, guess what? The rising tide of anti-Semitism that does exist in big parts of the United States came about as a result of Make America Great Again movement with Donald Trump, who was stoking the fires of this fascism, and who, by the same token, said that uh, that the United States was going to do everything it could for the state of Israel, meaning mm-hmm. it didn't matter that you were an anti... Like Richard Nixon, was he hated Jews. Richard Nixon mm-hmm. was an anti-Semite, 
but he was, and you read his stuff that he's talking to Kissinger, who was Jewish. Uh, it's clear he's an anti-Semite. I mean, especially when he's drunk, he can't stop saying like nasty, ugly things about Jewish people. But he was a hundred percent for the state of Israel. The Nixon doctrine was to rely on the state of Israel and the Shah of Iran to police the Middle East against the Arab Revolution. So, uh, you know, we have to like unmask the the real anti-Semites who are in large part supporters of the state of Israel. Uh, and we have to condemn the fascist anti-Semites for what they are, but not go along with the idea that by standing for justice for Palestine and against apartheid, that puts you in the camp of anti-Semitism. On the contrary, uh, when you look at the, again, the arc of justice or the, the arc of history, uh, what will happen, what we will see is that when Jewish people stand for justice and against apartheid and join with their Arab sisters and brothers and people all over the world, we will have a united front of all races and nationalities and religions against imperialism and against racism of all types and against every manifestation of fascist ideology, every manifestation of white supremacy, which, of course, does include uh, hatred towards Jewish people. Right. And I think one of the things that another one of the big breakthrough developments over the past several years that I think has helped thrown a wrench in that, you know, uh, that campaign by Israel to, you know, deflect uh, criticism into anti-Semitism is the rise of uh, the a, a much stronger now Jewish American movement in solidarity with Palestine, which, um, you know, it, is much more youth led now. It's existed, of course, for a long time since before the creation of the state of Israel, the Jewish opposition to it. Um, but but now it's it has like a resurgence in a major way which is very much complicating things. And, you know, it's interesting that this, this shift has happened because it's, you know, the Israel used to have a much easier time managing the political fallout, the media, the criticism, and all of that during one of its wars or, or during one of its scandals. And this time, the old tricks didn't work. And, and they had a much harder time. I mean, even during the Gaza war, that's usually their bread and butter. Oh, we're being attacked by rockets. This is self-defense. It's pretty clear cut. Um, but this time it was much harder. And so they have shifted now to, um, you know, and this is the dominant thing that has come out, you know, over the past week. It's, okay, yeah, the, yes, Israel's committing war crimes. Yes, this is terrible. But the fact that people are protesting it is causing a rise in anti-Semitic attacks. So you can disagree with Israel. You could think the racism is bad. You could think the bombing is bad. But if you take action, if you protest, that means you are going to contribute to the rise of anti-Semitic hate crimes, um, which are many of uh, those are do exist, but also there's definitely manufactured ones. Like here in LA, there's an article in the LA Times about how a Palestinian protesters committed a hate crime against just Jewish patrons at a restaurant, which, you know, uh, a friend of ours is investigating that. Seems that absolutely is not what happened at all. People there started a fight with them or whatever. But the media everywhere is running with these headlines that protesters and the existence of protests is leading to this rise in anti-Semitism. Um, but to me is a, a sign of desperation from the Israeli propaganda ma machine, which is very sophisticated, very much a full-time operation involving thousands of people that are putting the narrative that they want out there. And there's a very obvious shift to away from what Israel was doing to, uh, yes, it's bad, but if you protest it, you're going to contribute to the rise in anti-Semitism. So I think another example of, uh, showing their desperation. Also, you know, Abby talks a lot about the preemptively going to pass anti-BDS laws in different states. They were anticipating that there would eventually be an upsurge uh, that would be damaging for it. And that con they knew Israel knew consciousness was shifting under the surface. And this past two weeks was the first real uh, test of where those those sentiments went. But 
Um, I do want to shift though, because I think the um, the crux of our discussion today is is really, I mean, in a lot of ways, celebrating, but also orienting people towards marching towards victory. That we have reached a breakthrough, we've reached a turning point. This could be the beginning of the end for Israel, and there's no turning back from so much of the qualitative shift in consciousness that has happened. But that didn't just appear because Israel just did something really bad, or because all of a sudden people became more progressive in the country or became more anti-racist. In particular for Palestine, this has been a result of decades of struggle that for the most part was on the fringes and was very isolated. And you, Brian, um, from, you know, for a very long time, have been a part of that struggle. And so just so people can understand that what's happening now and the huge breakthrough we're in now is the product of a very long fight that was an uphill battle for so long. Now it's broken into the mainstream. But can you kind of take us through that history, the ups and the downs of the Palestine struggle in the U.S. and how it got us to where we are today? Sure. I mean, an uphill battle is putting it mildly, um, really mildly. I Before we do that, though, Abby and Mike, I want to just mention one quick thing, because uh, on this fi- a final point on this anti-Semitism, I'm looking at I'm looking at the Jewish Voices for Peace, which is mainly younger Jewish Americans and not a small group. Jewish Voices for Peace is guided by a vision of justice, equality and freedom for all people. We unequivocally oppose Zionism because it is counter to those ideals. That's a statement that they put out. Now, Jewish Voices for Peace did not have that position uh, a few years ago, and it certainly didn't have that position in the beginning. They were they were like the uh, probably the dominant strain among Jewish Americans is, you know, we don't agree with Israel's racism. We don't agree with the West Bank occupation or the occupation of Gaza. We don't uh, agree with many of the policies of the government, but we still, as Jews, support the state of Israel as a Jewish homeland. When you say you unequivocally oppose Zionism because it's counter to their ideals of justice, equality, and freedom for all people, that represents a seismic shift. And the, the shift in the Jewish voices for peace is reflective of this other shift that we're talking about, uh, which has been a byproduct, not just of what happened in the last weeks or months, but a, a byproduct of many, many decades of political and ideological struggle. I, as I mentioned, I'm the national director of the Answer Coalition. Uh, I, I'll just tell you real quickly, in, in the past, uh, and not so long ago in the past, in 2002, we were in a united front for a demonstration on April 20th, 2002, with another group of anti-war, co- another group of anti-war organizations, more of the traditional peace movement. And m- many of them went on to form another organization during the Iraq war, the other major uh, coalition besides Answer Coalition, which was called United for Peace and Justice. Now, at that time, right before we were going to have a spring demonstration against war in general, um, the Israelis reinvaded the West Bank. That was March 29, 2002. We put out a statement. The Answer Coalition Steering Committee put out a statement and said, the demonstration will now have its focus be on Palestine. And there was immediately a split between our two coalitions. And the other coalition would not have come to an opening rally with us that was focused on Palestine. And what they basically told us, I'm talking about what was going on inside the coalition meetings, not was in press releases or whatever, 
but people were basically saying, we want to have a big turnout and you can't have a big turnout if you're going to be on Palestine. You might be able to get a small turnout of like-minded people, but you can't really raise Palestine as a mainstream peace issue. And so our two demonstrations uh, separated and it was really weird. We had two different national anti-war marches <laughs> that started three blocks apart. And, you know, one was on the Washington Monument grounds and what the other was on the ellipse where uh, Trump had his January 6th rally. So literally like three blocks away, our demonstration was about free. Our demonstration was called free Palestine, no war on Iraq. And the other's demonstration was like for peace, justice and something, some, you know, general peace slogans. So shock of shocks. Their demonstration was about 15,000 and we had 85,000 people. Wow. And we had, and that was the largest and first time that there was a mass demonstration for Palestine in American history. We made an agreement with them at the end that we'd all march to the, a, a final concluding rally where we would march together. Uh, but it was really for the social Democrats and traditional peace and pacifist movement, I think it was like shocking that a demonstration that Answer led, which was anti-imperialist and pro-Arab and pro-Palestinian, drew so many people. That was a breakthrough moment. I wrote an article, which became sort of a polemical article in the anti-war movement at that time. And the title of my article was, Why the April 20th Protest Can Be Called, Quote, Historic. And then I went over you know, how the word historic is overused constantly. People always say, that was historic, and this was historic, <laughs> and everything is historic. And, you know, but in reality, only a few things are, quote, really historic, meaning like a change, like something that really opens the door to a new trend emerging. And I think that demonstration was certainly opened the door. And that's really was a breakthrough mo moment for the peace movement, because it also not only did it show that it was a, a matter of justice to be with Palestine, you could also organize on a mass basis for Palestine. Mm -hmm. Nothing like that had ever happened before. Uh, after that, all kinds of things started to happen. Uh, there was, you know, the flotilla movement. There was, you know, eventually there was many, many manifestations. But up until then, it was really, you know, very marginalized. Now, if you well, go right, re really quickly, Brian, because 20 years prior to that, there was a similar situation yes. where I think the same forces were organizing the biggest anti-war protest in history. And there is a a division over Palestine. Yeah. Could you so, mention that really quick? Yeah. And that's where I was going to go, in fact, because 2002, if you roll it back 20 years, there was a demonstration against war for peace, against nuclear weapons on June 12th in uh, Central Park in New York City. It was the largest peace demonstration, I think, ever in the United States at that time. A million people came out. And uh, six days before, the Israelis invaded Lebanon. And some of the same forces that were involved in organizing the 2002 protests that didn't focus on Palestine were very deeply involved in the central leadership of the June 12th, 1982, biggest peace movement ever. They made a decision that they would not allow Lebanon or the Israeli invasion of Lebanon to be mentioned from the stage. Can you imagine a million people? <laughs> war march. A million can't talk people. About the war. A million people marching for peace. Six days earlier, the U.S.-backed Israeli regime invaded Lebanon, was bombarding Beirut, and nobody could talk about it. And that was 1982. I mean, that's how much 
South, uh, Palestine had become a taboo. Now, in 1982, everybody in the peace movement was for uh, the struggle in El Salvador and Nicaragua against apartheid in South Africa, for Vietnam. Like, only Palestine, only Palestine had be, become a taboo subject in the American movement for peace and justice. And for those of you who think I'm exaggerating, I'd be glad to talk to you uh, in any sort of mode, in any medium, because it was so profound that if you decided that you were going to focus on on Palestine as, a, as an issue, people were going to literally boycott your demonstration. And when I say people, I mean people from the American left. And during the Vietnam War, uh, there was, you know, millions of people out in the streets during the 1967 uh, Israeli invasion of Jordan and Syria and Egypt, uh, the 67 war. And nobody from the anti-war movement mainstream uh, talked about it because in those who did, uh, again, people like in Youth Against War and Fascism, I was a member of that group, tried to raise it. Uh, people were marginalized, told to get out because the peace movement would not talk about Palestine. That was the tradition in the United States. I'll tell you one last story. In 2002, I mentioned what happened on April 20th. Okay, move the clock forward two years. On March 20th, 2004, on the anniversary of the U.S. invasion of Iraq, we had a joint United Front demonstration with United for Peace and Justice, UFPJ, the same group that you know formed an alternative to the Answer Coalition right before the war. We had a united front demonstration with them. We insisted that we talk about Iraq and Palestine. We said, occupation is a crime from Iraq to Palestine. And they wouldn't have a united front demonstration with us on the anniversary of Iraq in New York, one year after the invasion, when the resistance in Iraq was strong, and, and speak in front of a banner that had Palestine on it. So in order to compromise, after weeks of negotiations, we came to a united front so we could still have the biggest possible demo that we could mobilize against the Iraq war. There had to be two different banners. They were put on a pulley on the back wow. of the stage. So when Answer was speaking, the, uh, the slogan was, from Iraq to Palestine, occupation is a crime. And when United for Peace and Justice took their turn, we had to haul the banner down and put up another <laughs> banner God. with a pulley that omitted the word Palestine. Matter of fact, we had some fighting because they tried to take the banner down while we were still speaking. But anyway, that's a that's a historical aside. But can you imagine in 2004 when one of the two largest peace movements in the country uh, insisted that in order to have a united front, the one thing that must be changed is the ban- the word Palestine had to be omitted from it's a banner. Uh, that's where things were in the United States. That was 2004. And fast forward to today, it's you cannot go into these progressive spaces. You can't go into anti-war spaces or these communities fighting for these things, Brian, without being pro-Palestine. And that is a testament to the strength and resilience of the movement, the pressure that's mounted across progressive spaces. And you know, this facade that's still propped up by the liberal establishment that you can be a liberal Zionist, that you can be progressive except for Palestine, that that's not true anymore when it comes to actual organizing spaces. And that's an incredible anecdote. And it really shows you how far we have come over the last 20 years, Brian. Any closing thoughts to leave our audience with? 
Well, I think the most important thing for people in the uh, progressive movement in the United States, and that's why I think uh, your uh, your movie Gaza Fights for Freedom and your work on the Empire Files, but the work of others, including the Answer Coalition, is in fact the fundamental work here is that the the tide has shifted, but we still have to recognize that most people in the United States don't have familiarity with the with with what the real story is about Palestine. They desperately need information. We have to counteract the dominant narrative. Even uh, the people in Congress who are now using the word apartheid in association with the state of Israel, uh, because they're in the Democratic Party too, they're going to be limited in terms of uh, you know how strongly and boldly they can speak, no matter what their personal opinions. We have to educate the people of this country uh, that the United States absolutely needs to cut all aid uh, to Israel. The people in the United States have a special obligation to uh, to take action against the government that speaks in their name, carrying out all of the necessary military, diplomatic, and economic props for apartheid. Uh, you know, when the civil rights movement was, you know, finally victorious in the winning of the Civil Rights Act in 1964 and the Voting Rights Act of 1965, that was because uh, there was a, a, a sea change in the U.S. public. It was the black community that rose up, but tens of millions of white people were educated. They became aware. They were brought into the movement, too. The political climate changed. In the United States right now, uh, the U.S. government tells us that they, we can't have a national health plan, but gives Israel, you know, five billion dollars a year. Israel actually has a national health plan. <laughs> uh, you know, it was the second last country in the developed world to develop a national health plan. The U.S. is the only remaining outlier there. But you know, the the government, the the politicians in Congress say, "Oh, there's no money for that," and yet we're giving five billion dollars to the state of Israel. Now, uh, there should be a little caveat there. Most of the money that goes to Israel is actually just a subsidy for the U.S. arms industry. Uh, it's really like a prepaid voucher given to the Israeli Air Force so that it can uh, buy U.S. planes. In other words, it's really a subsidy for American capitalist corporations. But it gives the image that the U.S. is, and it's not just an image, that the U.S. is the principal backer of Israel. We have to make it untenable in the United States for the American government, the U.S. government, the government that speaks in our name to continue to be complicit in carrying out racism and apartheid and white supremacy and murder against Palestinian people. Can we do it? Can we make the change such that the U.S. government makes it uh, finds itself impossible or finds it impossible to continue uh, this policy? Yes, we can. So we have to educate our people. We have to educate the people of this country. We have to provide the facts, the counter narrative, and we have to mobilize people into a potent political force. If we do that, uh, the Palestinian people have shown that they're willing to do whatever it takes to be steadfast, but they need international allies. We have to be ready to provide that kind of support and solidarity. We totally agree, Brian, that education component, of course, is key to reaching new people. We know that you are doing that every day. In fact, three days a week, uh, publishing episodes at the Socialist Program. You know, uh, we really enjoyed having you on because that's our mission, too, to do the education. And we've really appreciated your insight and historical analysis today about the moment that we're in. Um, and then, as you mentioned, 
the education is the first step, and then it's the mobilizing. And so we hope that the material we produce today and that you produce on your show, Brian, and we produce here at Empire Files can be the step for people to get educated and then getting mobilized, which we, uh, all of us here, the three of us have been very much a part of these past two weeks and will be going forward. And uh, Brian, we appreciate you so much for joining us today. And I look forward to having you on again soon. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Brian.